This is VLX number 129, Den of Robbers. We are in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 13. VLX stands for Video Lexio Divina, the Patristic Bible Study and Ignatian Prayer Series Online. God give you his peace in nomine Patris et Fidei, Spiritus Sancti, Amen. God our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine Patris et Fidei, et Spiritus Sancti, Amen. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. This may be the last video for a little while due to my trial, but I think I should get off and be back online to uh, keep teaching. And only other announcement before we start is thank you for the comments that you leave on YouTube or Rumble. Um, I think most of you know I do not check direct messages on Facebook or private messages on Twitter. I guess it's vice versa on those. Probably the best way, if you ever have to get a hold of me, for a prayer request or a question, um, and keep those questions to just one because I get a lot of emails and texts. Um, I think most of my donors have my cell phone for prayer requests. You can just text me. Um, if, you, uh, if you look at my donate page, and you don't have to be a donor to write me an email, but that's where you can find my public email is on my donor page. The one thing I say in the blog is if you have a bunch of questions, just try to narrow it down to one. Um, I really am honored that a lot of people trust me with their lives, but sometimes people send me a battery of numerous questions, and it, it helps if you just send me one. And before we start today's section, I do want to remind you that this is a series on meditation, so I do want to review very briefly the difference between meditation and contemplation. St. Gemma Galgani, spiritual director, he wrote about this difference between meditation and contemplation in her biography. He writes, By means of prayer, the soul is enabled to lift itself near to God and thus live a spiritual life, that of Christian perfection. This spiritual life has various degrees, and the soul that is enabled to pass through all of them will assuredly come to a full union with God. The first degrees are those of ordinary prayer and meditation by which we consider the eternal truths and apply them to ourselves so as to excite corresponding heartfelt sentiments. Many souls stop at these first degrees, which are those of the so-called ascetic life. Others pass from meditation to contemplation, which belongs to the mystical life. Contemplation is an elevation of the soul to God and heavenly things by means of a simple intellectual loving gaze that brings an absorbing peace and light into the mind and heart of the contemplative. In meditation, the soul must often labor much in the exertion of its power, memory, understanding, and will. In contemplation, she has only to gaze and admire the beauty of the object that God shows her. She does not then exercise herself in reflections, applications, reasonings, etc., but remains, as it were, in mental suspense before the great things that draw her out of herself in admiring wonder. We may say that the contemplative does here on earth, in a limited degree, what the blessed do in heaven. Okay, me here. No, notice you can't force the move from meditation to contemplation. Too many of you, and too, too often in my life, have I sat around, you know, waiting for ecstasy or whatever. It just doesn't come unless you're, like, really living a life of tremendous fasting and stuff to actually be brought to, like, um, very frequently to contemplation. But most of us have had little tastes of contemplation. So in humility, unless you're living on like a potato a day like St. John Vianney, 
um, you should probably assume you're still at the level of meditation unless you're raised to contemplation as understood by a classic, not the modernist, by a classic definition like the one I just read you. The fact is most people who give themselves to a life of meditation, I exaggerated a little bit, you don't have to be living on a potato a day, most people who give themselves to a life of meditation occasionally taste contemplation. But, and here's the most important thing to remember, this is why you should stick with this series, even if you're at very high levels of prayer. The baseline remains meditation. What I mean by that is that St. Teresa of Avila, and remember, Teresa of Avila, she died beyond the unitive stage of prayer in what's called the mystical marriage of the soul to God. She had numerous ecstasies, but even this great giant of the interior life, even she constantly taught her nuns till the end that you always begin your contemplative prayer, or rather your interior life, by meditation. You don't just sit around expecting contemplation. You have to do the mental work. You always begin, and she was actually specific what you meditate on, the humanity of Jesus. Isn't that humble of her? This woman who left behind numerous ecstasies always started meditation for herself and the nuns on the humanity of Jesus. So in other words, even if your goal is very high contemplation, you has to begin with simple meditation on the Gospels. And that's why we do this VLX series. And that's why I don't hesitate to make this overly intellectual at times. I make it intellectual because I'm convinced God will make it spiritual if you apply yourself to the method of both study and imagination, or you just pick one of those two. But as far as imagination, let's, re let's review the fourfold method of St. Teresa of Avila. Number one is the selection of material and preparation of meditation. Number two is the consideration. This is where you ask, who is here in this scene? What is he or she doing? Why is he or she doing it? Usually Jesus or Mary. And what does it mean to me? Number three is conversation with Jesus or Mary. Father Peter the Old Carmelite writes, The soul begins to talk slowly to Christ, telling him of its love for him, its desire to serve him, its willingness to do anything for him. He adores Christ in the scene of today's meditation. He expresses his love for him, thanks him for past gifts, petitions him for new favors in the future. St. Teresa of Avila says, You can place yourself in the physical presence of Christ, talk with him, laugh with him, and confide in him. Instead of using formal prayers, extemporaneously express your interests. This will result in, in rapid progress. And number four is gratitude or resolution. And that is where, again, you continue to talk to our Lord. So notice that the notion that you talk to Jesus or Mary, you don't have to leave that for the ultra-high mystical contemplatives of the world. Even at the level of meditation, you should feel confident to do that as a Catholic. Well, you just heard today's gospel. You may want to picture yourself holding palm branches. I guess this was kind of yesterday's or the last VLX. You picture yourself holding palm branches as you see Jesus riding slowly into Jerusalem on the donkey. His, his face is peaceful. Probably his eyes are turned down. But the apostles are looking around, of course. They're looking around at all these fans of Jesus and presumably fans of them too because everybody knew, everybody knew a rabbi and his groupies. They were enjoying a taste of the glory, forgetting everything Jesus had said both a long time ago and recently about how short-lived glory would be in Jerusalem for him for his execution is only four or five days away. So then in today's gospel, you picture Jesus angry the only time we have record where his anger gets physical. Keep in mind that St. Thomas Aquinas holds that anger is neutral, 
Now, usually we use it for sin, but it's, it's a neutral passion, and sometimes it can be used for good. So the notion that just because Jesus got angry, I, I heard someone at Boston College say this, therefore he, I don't even like to say it in the same sentence, he sinned. Obviously, that's totally blasphemous, but it doesn't even understand the passions, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, that anger is, see, anger is not like lust. Lust is always sinful. Um, Attraction is not. Lust is always sinful. Anger it is a passion that can be used for good or evil. Most of us use it for evil, but here, Jesus in the temple, clearly, he is the Holy Son of God. He is clearly using it for good. Now, too many normie Catholics say that anger is a sin. Too many traditional Catholics think they're justifying their anger because Jesus got angry in the temple. But here's the key to today's anger. You have to ask yourself, what is the object of Christ's righteous anger today? The answer is this. It was his father's honor and the accidental glory denied to his father in his own temple of worship. That is what requires Christ to clear it out. In fact, Father Lapide claims that St. Jerome says this cleansing of the temple was the greatest miracle of Jesus. Listen to that again. It's quite a claim that St. Jerome thinks that the cleansing of the temple was the greatest miracle of Jesus. Why is that? St. Jerome writes that because Christ alone, quote, by the stripes of one scourge cast out so great a multitude and overturned the tables and broke the seats and other things which a vast army of people could not have done for something fiery and star-like radiated from his eyes and the majesty of his Godhead shone in his face, end quote. In other words, what St. Jerome is saying there is one man alone could not take down, or out rather, how many people St. Jerome knows were illicitly selling items in that first century temple without supernatural power. And as long as we're talking about the imaginative way, let's look at something St. Ignatius would say. You know, when we look at the method of St. Ignatius, I think it's very easy to conflate feeling with intuition. It does seem like St. Ignatius is saying you really should search your feelings as you look at this, but I would say maybe it's a little bit more intuition. An old Franciscan bishop I knew said, intuition is the crossroads between reason and feelings. In other words, when we are looking at what's going on in our soul for St. Ignatius of Loyola, we're talking about something deeper than feelings when we speak of intuition. And honestly, I think probably, think of that bishop's definition again, the intuition is the crossroads between reason and feelings, but essentially deeper than both. I think intuition is essentially where Ignatian discernment of spirits takes place, that crossroads of the intellect and feelings. So notice it takes more than the intellect to do this, but it's certainly a lot deeper than just feelings. Um, but that is why, I will point out, that is why that some people think discernment of spirits has something to do with feelings. They're not totally wrong. But it is deeper than that. And it's important we consider today with this righteous anger how even that for Jesus Christ is accompanied by an interior peace and tranquility. So how do we deal with feelings in the spiritual life? I'm going to look a little bit at this before we go into the study section since there are a lot of people out there who do the Ignatian or Teresian imaginative way. How do we deal with feelings in the spiritual life? How does God use the feelings or intuition in Catholics to help guide them? Well, St. Ignatius of Loyola says that answer is very different for those living in mortal sin versus those who are striving to live in sanctifying grace. Notice I say striving because an occasional fall where you get to confession, that doesn't necessarily change the trajectory of your life. Now, it can, so you have to be extremely careful because one mortal sin can have you fall into presumption or despair. 
But if on a general level you are striving to live in sanctifying grace, and if, God forbid, you have the misfortune to fall into mortal sin and you go to confession immediately, we can say that Ignatius of Loyola basically gives two sets of rules for how God and the angels deal with souls living in sin versus souls living in grace. So St. Ignatius describes one group of people who go from one mortal sin to another. This is clearly a reference to people who are not living in sanctifying grace. And then for St. Ignatius, the other category is people choosing to live or again, striving to live in sanctifying grace. However, for the sake of just kind of an easy explanation on the podcast, I'm going to use the more juvenile term, good person and bad person for these two categories. And I realize there's a lot of theological and anthropological nuances I'm missing in painting with such broad strokes, but I'm going to parse this out in bite-sized terms so you know how the angels deal with good people and the angels deal with bad people. This comes right from St. Ignatius. And because this is an Ignatian podcast, that's why I think it's worth saying this. So number 314 in the rules of discernment of St. Ignatius of Loyola, how demons affect bad people. Number 314 says, in the case of those who go from one mortal sin to another, the enemy is ordinarily accustomed to proposed apparent pleasures. He fills their imagination with sensual delights and gratifications of sinning, the more readily to keep them in their vice and increase the number of their sins. That was how demons affect bad people. How do demons affect good people? Number 315. It is characteristic of the evil spirit to harass with anxiety, to afflict with sadness, to raise obstacles backed by fallacious reasonings that disturb the soul of those who go on earnestly striving to cleanse their souls from sin and who seek to rise in the service of God our Lord to greater perfection. Okay, now let's look at how the angels affect bad people. Just one sentence from St. Ignatius. He says, Making use of the light of reason, the angel will rouse the sting of conscience and fill them with, re fill them with remorse. Isn't that interesting? Here we have one of the greatest saints of the Catholic Church saying that angels themselves will rouse the sting of conscience. So all these people who say that it's always wrong to use fear to bring people to the gospel, clearly that's false. Now, I do agree, what does it say in Romans 1 or 2, that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. I do think that should be our normative approach to convert those, of, those people in our lives that it is his kindness that has led us to repentance. So kindness should be our baseline. But as we will see in Jesus cleansing the temple, this was also an act of love. This was sort of the final act of love before his crucifixion to tell the Jews how far they were from God. Before his crucifixion, before his resurrection, and then you know what happens, was it 40 or 70 years later? Uh, 40 years later, the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. Okay, and then the last that I really want you to pay attention to, this is how angels affect good people. Number 315, it is characteristic of the good spirit, however, to give courage and strength, consolations, tears, inspirations, and peace. This he does by making all easy, by removing all obstacles, so that the soul goes forward in doing good, end quote. So keep in mind that even if you're trying to live for God, your angel or God himself will give you, did you hear what it said? Courage and strength, consolations, tears, inspirations, and peace. So if you're feeling anxiety, it's probably from the demon. doesn't mean you're in sin. doesn't mean you're possessed. Um, all of us get thrown temptations. Even Jesus in the, devil, in the desert has the devil come to him, so it doesn't mean you're bad. But if there's anxiety coming at you, it's probably from the devil, unless, it's, unless you're actually living in sin and there's a, a sting of conscience. But normally, for most people listening to this podcast, 
be ready to receive courage and strength and consolation from your angel. That is actually what God wants to give you when it's a time of consolation. Now, there's times of desolation when God builds you up in a very different way. So desolation doesn't mean you're in sin. But when you feel that consolation, don't say, oh, no, no, I'm too sinful to receive this. Accept it because it can come from God even for people who are just striving to live for him. So we will spend today's VLX and at least one more, probably a few more, on the cleansing of the temple. So, verse 12, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the temples of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Let's see what Father Lapide has to say about Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. Jesus entering into Jerusalem did not come to the citadel of Sion as a second David, but to the temple that he might show that he was the Son of God the Father, who was worshipped in the temple. Therefore there is no doubt that Christ gave thanks in the temple to God the Father because he had manifested him to the whole city as the Messiah, yes, had glorified him by the applause of all the people. This was the first concern of Jesus as chief priest, or pontiff as Father Lapide says, and Messiah with the temple. Hence entering into the city... He came to that the first, that he might teach us to do the same. For this reason, he set out on his journey through Bethania, where he raised Lazarus and Bethphage, which were over against the temple, that through them he might proceed straight away to the temple. For as I have said regarding verse 1, Christ from Bethphage, passing over Mount Olivet, proceeding directly from thence, through the valley of Josephat to the Golden Gate, which per- pertained both to the temple and to the city, near to which was the golden eagle set up by Herod. Therefore, through this gate, there was an immediate access to the temple. So notice right there that Father Lapide called Christ pontiff, but he doesn't say high priest, I think, on purpose. Why? Because Jesus was not a Levitical priest. He was a priest of the order of Melchizedek. It's an older priesthood. And so we're going to hear exactly which part of the temple Jesus enters into. Father Lapide says, Note that by the temple here is understood neither the sanctuary nor the Holy of Holies, for into the latter it was lawful only for the high priest, into the former only for the priest, that is priests or high priest, to enter. But rather, Jesus entered the court of the temple. For into this the laity were accustomed to enter in order to pray and behold the sacrifices which were offered in the court of the priest before the sanctuary. For this court was, as it were, the people's temple. For Christ was not a Levitical priest, since he was not sprung from Levi and Aaron. Therefore, he could not enter the sanctuary, nor the court of the priests, only the court of the people. So notice what it's saying here is Jesus doesn't have the bloodline of a Levitical priest. He has the bloodline of an older priesthood, which is that of Melchizedek. Now, it appears that Jesus enters the temple on Palm Sunday, but Father Lapide says the cleansing of the temple happens the next day. So I think what he's saying, and you can listen to what Father Lapide says, I was myself a little bit confused, What it sounds like he's saying is Jesus entered into the temple on Palm Sunday to pray, but the cleansing happened the next day. So he may have spent a lot of time in prayer. There there does appear to be a discrepancy between Matthew and Mark, but Father Lapide explains in the timeline section here why it appears there's a discrepancy, but it's not. For he says that here in Matthew, a hyperbaton, or an inverted historical order, is used. For St. Matthew wished to join with Christ's entrance into the temple his ejection of the buyers from the temple for the sake of brevity, lest he should be compelled to relate over again the entrance of Christ into the temple on the following day. So 
what he's trying to say is probably the exact timeline would be according to Mark, Mark chapter 11, verse 11, where the cleansing happened the day after Palm Sunday. So this is the timeline that Father Lapide proposed. This is kind of important. Some of you take notes, and this would kind of be a fun little timeline to write down, uh, especially as we look at these five days in Lent. I realized, actually, we're going to go long beyond Lent on these five days. So I'm sorry for saying that on an earlier one. I was walking through Walgreens getting something for my mother, and I realized we're going to be in these five days for probably another year. (laughs) So I'm sorry for saying we're going to be coming to the resurrection at Easter. We're not. Okay, so here's the timeline. Christ, therefore, on Palm Sunday entered into the city and the temple in solemn pomp and prayed in it and gave thanks to God. Afterwards, about evening tide, he went out of the city to Bethania with the twelve apostles. And on the next day, Monday, he returns to the city and temple and drove out of it the sellers and the buyers. So notice Palm Sunday is a day of prayer. And then Monday, he cleanses the temple. Now, why did he cleanse the temple? Father Lapide says the first is because it was not seemly that those things should be sold in the temple, but in the marketplace. For the temple is a house of prayer, not a business, as Christ says. should be pretty obvious. And then the second reason was the avarice and usury of the priests. So the object is wrong, what they're actually doing, but so is the intention. The intention of these priests is very very wrong. For Father Lapide says that he they sold them at a dear rate. It's an interesting term, an interesting translation. A dear rate. What did... What was being sold? Sheep, kids, by that I think he means little goats. I've obviously never worked on a farm if I don't know what a kid is. Doves, to those who wished to offer them to the temples, especially to those who came from a distance and poor, these were the ones that were being exploited here. A little bit more on the timeline. Um, It does appear, you know, a lot of modern scripture scholars say St. John's Gospel is all off the timeline because he has the cleansing of the temple a lot earlier, but it's a really easy solution there was two cleansings of the temple. That's exactly what Father Lapide says here. Um, And actually, he gets that from St. John Chrysostom. Christ twice cast out buyers from the temple, the first time at the beginning of his preaching. That's John chapter 2, verse 14. Go look at that. Why would John put that at the very beginning? John chapter 2, we have a cleansing of the temple. Modernist scripture scholars who don't believe just say, oh, all this stuff was made up and they just got they got confused in their lies with each other when the cleansing of the temple happened, where real believers say, no, it's really obvious there was just two cleansings of a temple. So one cleansing is in John chapter 2, and then the second of it, towards the end of his ministry, that was four days before his death, and this is what both St. John Chrysostom and St. Augustine hold. So pretty big hitters who actually believed in the gospel telling us that. Okay, and then what happens? It says he overthrew. That's an important word to meditate on. Picture, picture what that means. He overthrew the tables of the money changers. And again, what I said at the beginning of this podcast, St. Jerome thinks that this was Christ's greatest miracle, that he alone could, by the stripes of one scourge, cast out so great a multitude and overturn the tables and break the seats and do other things which a vast army could not have done for something fiery and star-like radiated from his eyes and the majesty of the Godhead shone in his face. Now, how serious is it for clergy to be making money off of poor people? Let's see what Father Lapide has to say, and then I want to look at what's happening in the modern church. Father Lapide points out that St. Jerome says, For a robber and he who converts the temple into the appearance of a robber's den is he who makes gain out of religion, and his worship is not so much the worship of God as an occasion of business. Because, in fact, such priests, wholly bent on money-making, lurking in a place of honest appearance, the temple as in a den by selling at a dear rate, by usury and other fraudulent methods and arts, 
are wont to despoil foreigners and poor people, yes, plunder them as robbers do. So we look back at that, and we know that was pretty terrible. But you know what happened under the lockdowns, right? Probably most of you have heard me talk about the lockdowns enough, so I actually want to rewind about seven or eight years ago to show you how long the USCCB has been taking bad money. I'm going to read you from a LifeSite news article from 2016. You've all heard me talk about the uh, Paycheck Protection Program, lockdowns, all of that stuff. But this problem goes back a long ways. This goes, the money, the, the USCCB taking a bunch of money from the Democrats goes long before 2016. But I'm going to read you an article in LifeSite News from 2016 so that you know this goes long before lockdowns, Trump, all these debates. The title of the LifeSite News article is, Is the $91 million Obama refugee grant to the USCCB tied to Bishop's silence on Hillary Clinton? And what it says here is, that the figures, and by the way, LifeSite News has the receipts. They, they print the receipts from, Life, from USCCB here. This isn't speculation, it's fact. The figures available on the usaspending.gov website show the USCCB garnering more than, get this everybody, $91 million for refugee resettlement programs, more than $202 million going to Catholic charities, which also serves refugees, and the Boston-based ICMC getting more than $17 million in government funds stipulated entirely for U.S. refugee resettlement. Father Lapide then points to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, where God says, Is this house then in which my name hath been called in your eyes become a den of robbers? I, I am he, I have seen it, saith the Lord." You know, most normie Catholics today like to talk about connections of the prophets to the New Testament. Very few people today like to imagine what Jeremiah would call people out for. Could it be maybe $91 million to the USCCB? Do you think maybe he might call that out? But you know, none of us are off the hook because Father Lapide then points to... Um, Basically, how 2,000 years ago, you also had regular Jews participating in this. Today, and this comes from the Church Fathers, as you're going to hear, uh, St. Bede points out that even just talking before the Blessed Sacrament, even just talking in a Catholic church, is tantamount to disrespecting the temple. So it's interesting Father, La Father Lapide puts that in this section here, just even goofing around in a Catholic church. Father Lapide says, Tropologically, the temple is a house, not for talk, nor speculation, nor drinking, nor reveling, but for prayer. Let therefore those who profane it by gossiping, by gaping about them, by acting lasciviously, by drinking, see how they will be scourged by Christ. You know that story of Padre Pio. He saw a priest in a purgatory for a long time for not genuflecting as he crossed in front of the tabernacle. Father Lapide continues, What then, my brethren? What do we think the Lord would do? And actually, he's quoting St. Bede here. What then, my brethren, what do we think the Lord would do if he found people quarreling or listening to fables or giving way to laughter or entangled in any other wickedness when Christ saw those who were buying in his temple victims which were to be offered to himself and made haste to cast them out? What then will Christ do to Christians who perpetuate these and worst indignities in his temple before the Blessed Sacrament. Wow. What then will Christ do to Christians who perpetuate these and worst indignities in his temple before the Blessed Sacrament? Father Lapide says, 
Learn from hence how great reverence is due to the temple, such indeed as is due to God's house, for Christ calls it my house. St. Augustine warns in his own rule, Let no one do anything in the oratory except that for which it was made, from whence also it hath its name. That is, oratory means a place of prayer. Please say an Our Father for me, et benedictio Dei omnipotentis, Patris et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti, descendit super vos et maniat semper. Amen.